Welcome to Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast brought to you by STS Education. We strive to be the bridge that connects communities of educators so that they can fulfill the promise of learning through technology. Join us every other week as we connect with education leaders who share their deep experience with the education and technology topics you are grappling with in your own schools and districts. Each interview is designed to bring you tangible ideas you can start using tomorrow. I'm Alex Inman, the founder of Educational Collaborators. And I'm Bob Sabruti, founder of the Edutech Group. Welcome to the show. So Bob, today's show is kind of different, actually. Like instead of somebody who's more focused an aspect of ed tech, we've got Dr. Melvin Brown, superintendent of Montgomery Public Schools in Montgomery, Alabama, large school superintendent. And he's a friend of yours, right? He is indeed. Dr. Brown and I have known each other for six, seven, eight years, maybe longer. The years go by faster and faster, they say, and it's true. I can't wait today to talk to him. It's been a bit since I've talked to him. It's the first time I've spoke to him since he's been in Montgomery. But the man is, I don't know how to describe him. I don't know where will this conversation will go today. It could be about his James Madison Dukes. <laughs> it could be about the latest software for student assessment, or it could be about his journey through becoming an educator himself and how he ended up where he is. And I can guarantee you, whatever it is, it'll be insightful and enjoyable. The guy is terrific. Given the diversity of districts that he's been in and the roles that he's had, I know we're going to talk to some degree about equity and how that plays out in districts. And if we get to how that works with technology, great. And if not, I'm just interested in learning from this man. So should be a good show. I think so, too. Let's see what Dr. Brown has to say. Welcome, everyone. Today's guest, Dr. Melvin Brown, is a change maker and innovator with over 25 years worth of experience in school administration, a champion of public schools with a wealth of experience working in education from his days as a principal to his current role in Alabama as superintendent for Montgomery City Schools. The face of education is in a state of dramatic flux in the wake of new innovations and in educational technology. And Dr. Brown's work has been, in part, focused on harnessing this tide of change to build stronger schools. By speaking out, engaging in legislative support, and embracing state-of-the-art technology, Dr. Brown believes his schools can provide truly equitable opportunity for all students to reach their potential. I'm happy to welcome to the show, Dr. Melvin Brown. Melvin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So I get to go first in asking Melvin, my friend, a question. I did the math and we've known each other now for six or seven years. He and I were both in Ohio at the same time. And Melvin, you were a superintendent at Cuyahoga Falls Schools, which won't mean much to our listeners and then Reynoldsburg, but I've got to believe I know a bit about Alabama. My family is from Dothan. My mom's side of the family is from Dothan, so it's south of where you're at there in Montgomery. I grew up summers in Dothan, Alabama, but it's got to be a big difference between Cuyahoga Falls and Reynoldsburg and Montgomery Public Schools. So what do you see the same and different? And tell us a little bit about it and why you're there. One clarification in Cuyahoga Falls, I wasn't superintendent there, I was deputy superintendent. I, I wanna make sure we give people their props. Thank you for the correction. Well, comparing Cuyahoga Falls to Reynoldsburg in itself is very different. The districts are very different. Cuyahoga Falls is very homogenous. There's not much diversity. There are not too many people of color there. And so the only black male on the entire district. That gives you one sense of it, but a very welcoming community that supported me tremendously throughout the work we were trying to do there. So very different in that respect. Going to Reynoldsburg, extremely diverse, lots of populations from all over the place and lots of international students as well. 
which was on the cutting edge of doing lots of STEM work. At the time, we had the only K-12 STEM pipeline in the state of Ohio. Lots of good work in that space, really talking about innovation and how to push things forward. What did deeper learning look like? How can we make that come to fruition in classrooms and that sort of thing? And then coming to Montgomery, again, I'm back in a very homogenous district where 92% Black, not a lot of diversity in that regard, uh, but very different challenges. Uh, it's an inner city school, school district. We have many of the typical inner city issues we have to confront. We also have some issues in terms of infrastructure, historical neglect, if you will, of some of our buildings for various numbers of reasons. So infrastructure has had a lot to do. We've had a lot to do in that space. We've struggled academically for a number of years for a number of different reasons. And our goal, our job is to really go about creating space where all kids can have an opportunity to be successful doing things that they want to do, not doing the things we want them to do. So some of the nomenclature that we're using and some of the innovations that we're trying to put in place are new for our district. They haven't seen some of these things before. They even talked about some of those ideas. And so I think people have been excited about the whole notion of the fact we want to talk about the whole child and build opportunities for them as opposed to saying these types of kids fit in this box and these types of kids fit in that box. So three very different experiences. So I feel like I run the gamut in terms of some of the challenges you might see in school districts. I go back to my earlier career as an assistant superintendent in Virginia, much more affluent area. So I got to see some other things as well. So I've had some varied experiences throughout my career that have kind of gotten me where I am now. And we have some really, really unique challenges that we have to face. And fortunately, we have a staff of folks who are interested in addressing those issues and are working to make that happen. So let's talk a little bit about some of those issues. In your history and some of the stuff that I've read, you've talked about how strong schools really are the foundation for strong communities. You talked about some of the challenges associated with your buildings and stuff. What are some of those challenges that you're dealing with in, in Montgomery? And build, if you can, for us some of that bridge between addressing those challenges and how those impact the community at large. Typically in the inner cities, you're going to have issues with potential gun violence, things of that nature, that does plague our community to some degree, just like any other inner city throughout the country. So sometimes those issues manifest themselves in schools. Fortunately, we haven't had any types of violent issues that would have gotten that kind of recognition or that kind of attention. We've been very fortunate in that regard that we have not. And we have a lot of safeguards to prevent ourselves from being in that predicament. But still, those issues, that trauma, those experiences still come to our front doors and they show up every day in classrooms. We want to be able to work with kids to get them to achieve, to get them to aspire to new and different things. But they're bringing all these things to the classroom. We can't ignore those things. We have to be able to support them in that regard so they can be successful. The whole notion of addressing the whole child means you cannot ignore those issues when they come to school. So that's part of it. There's a one to one correlation for the most part and through most research between poverty and achievement. That is an issue here as well. Despite being an inner city district, we are also one of the least funded districts throughout the state. Our district did manage to pass a levy back in 2019 that would have gotten additional funds for infrastructure, curriculum, and things of that nature. However, we just started seeing those funds this month because of some things that were written into the legislation. So that is something that is long overdue. We're talking about 25 years of basic neglect of buildings because there was no money to support those things. Lots of patchwork situations, lots of temporary fixes. Now we're fortunately in a place where we can actually start doing some permanent fixes. So we are going to be constructing quite a few new schools to replace current models. We're excited about that. We also went through the whole notion of 
renaming schools. We had two schools, two of our high schools were named for members, legends from the Confederacy. We renamed those schools last year. So those two schools had now have new names this year. So that was something I'm proud we were able to do. And I'm proud that we didn't have a whole lot of backlash in regard to doing that. I was about to ask that, like, did you deal with much backlash on? I didn't. The thing about the district took steps to do that year and a half before I got here. They had voted to do it, but yet there was no movement to actually get it done. So as I was coming in the door, the question was posed to me and I was like, well, we're going to handle it. The board gives action and it's my job to carry that out. So in the first couple of months, we put that conversation on the table and we started talking about what a name change looked like. What are the implications of doing so? And all the funding and the uniforms. And there's a law here that if you change the name of something that's been named something for more than 20 years, you have to pay $50,000 for that. So fortunately, yeah, that's a real thing. Wow. <laughs> to those listening to the podcast, you couldn't actually hear my head tilt and my, <laughs> and my eyebrow raise. <laughs> we have a community that supported changing those names and they raised the funds. So the funds are sitting there when I arrived. So I applaud our community for supporting that effort. But then we had to go through the paces to actually get that done. Very little backlash in terms of changing. And we had a lot of discussion about what the names could be, but not getting those names off of buildings. Okay, hang on. I'm still hung on this whole $50,000 thing. And so, like, where does that money go? Changing the name of a building is also expensive, right? You've got the signage, you've got the letterhead, you got all the PR stuff that needs to happen. Do you get to use that $50,000 towards those costs? Who gets that money? So it goes into a fund that was passed in legislation. It goes into a fund that the state regulates. So for each site, we had two schools we were renamed, which is why it was $50,000. It's $25,000 per site when you change a name. So yeah, we just basically had to write the check once we, the board took action to change those names. It sounds like a hurdle for hurdle's sake to me. I think it's an effort to dissuade folks from actually going down those routes and taking the steps to do such a thing. I did get in a call from the attorney general's office saying, hey, you owe such and such and such and such because you did this. I was like, well, just send me the invoice and we'll take care of it. I'm not paying a bill that I don't have an invoice for. So I'm proud of my board for taking those steps. I'm really, really, really proud of my board for doing that. I can see Melvin with a big golf check coming up and <laughs> here's your check. If you do that, I want a picture. Send it to us. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think in the dissuading piece of the conversation, I think that effort is to prevent folks from doing those kinds of things. And when I was told the implications, I got, well, I'm well aware of what those implications are. However, I don't think there's a price for giving our kids a space in which they can feel safe and secure. And if they feel supported by what we're doing, then we'll pay that price. So one of the things that I just want to acknowledge is New superintendent comes to a school, ideas, I'm going to bring ideas I've had, we're going to change. And the first thing you have to do is people don't realize all the air that gets sucked out of all the resources. We talked about the money, but the time to go into fighting these battles, to name a school. I admire that you and the board went through and got it done. Like you have all these goals, I imagine. I'm going to do this and we're going to help kids do this. And what do you mean? I got to raise $50,000 now so we can change the name of the school. So anyway, just a little... Great job, Dr. Brown. <laughs> Applause to my community for taking care of that. So one of the things you said when you're talking about Reynoldsburg was you did some cutting edge stuff. You had a very diverse community. I'm familiar with Reynoldsburg and some high performers there, of course, as well. Then you come to a, a school system like Montgomery, where you said for various reasons, and I'm sure we can imagine the multitude of reasons why there's been struggles and achievement and performance and stuff. What do you bring? Where do you start? 
we had to really start with foundational pieces. And coming into the district, we discovered we really didn't have a lot of well-defined systems to allow us to get the work done. And then we also didn't have some of the people who knew how to go about implementing those types of systems. So we had to make some staffing changes here or there. We had to put in place some practices that just made sense in terms of how we worked, ask some questions about the why as to why we're doing certain things. And many times you get the, well, we've always done it this way. Okay, great. Well, let's find another way to do it. Having those types of discussions and then getting people to think about what vision can look like. It's really easy to be in a school district and talk about its past and live in its present, but have no vision of what the future might be. And I think we had to do some things, some mindset work that people say, what is my biggest obstacle? It's about mindset and changing people's orientation from being fixed to having a growth mindset and saying that our kids, because of where they're from and what they do, they can only do these things. Like, well, no, they can do anything they want. It's our job to give them those opportunities. So doing some mindset work has been very purposeful and changed the way people think about our kids, about our community, about our adults, about our school district. We have not had the most stellar reputation, if you will, as a school, and we still don't for that matter, in terms of what we've done with kids and how we promote the school district. And I had to do a lot of work personally, just going out and make connections in our community to get our civic organizations involved, our mayor's office, our chamber of commerce, Maxwell Air Force Base, which is a huge entity here, and in making folks their partners in the work that we're trying to do. And I've been really, really fortunate that we've been able to galvanize those folks behind us. Now we're all trying to be as one and move in the right direction. We also have a lot of great people in the trenches doing the real work. You know, the things I do many times I've kind of referred to as window dressing. Our folks are really trying to move the needle in terms of what teaching and learning looks like in classrooms and how we go about preparing kids for opportunities. So I'm really proud of the work our folks have done in that regard. We've come a long way in a year, but I mean, we have eons to go in terms of trying to really get where we want to get. I kind of use the phrase that I want us to chase being a perfect school district, knowing they will never get there. That's important to me that we always want to be better tomorrow than we were today. So that's some of the, the really down foundational work that we've had to get done. So I spent most of my career as a technology director. And one of the things that I always said is the job of a technology director has way more to do with change management than it has to do with actually technology, right? And so I kind of feel like I've spent most of my career working on that, changing mindsets, changing visions. So I'm kind of personally interested. Can you tell us a little bit more about like, how do you tackle changing mindsets, especially in a district as large and historical as yours? Some might say I'm not doing it well, so uh, who knows? Well, the other uh, part too is, look, we didn't say this in the intro. You've been superintendent of Montgomery Schools for one year and like four months, right? Yeah, close to four months now, something like that. Okay, so like anybody who knows anything about change management, that's like a nanosecond in an organization your size. So I appreciate your humility for saying, well, it's something we're still working on, but dude, you've been there for a nanosecond. So what are you trying? Because you're still in its infancy of change management. Yeah, I think with some of the things we brought in that we wanted to talk about, one, we're redoing our strategic plan. So that'll be done in a couple of months. Uh, That can be done December, January timeframe. And in that, we'll have some markers that really give us a chance to measure what we're doing and how to report that out to the community. We put in place a digital platform and now we can actually 
communicate that data to others than just ourselves. And there, Ooh, it's what are you using? Because there are some really cool tools on that. We use Aubrey. Okay. Which I'm really excited about. I wish I could tell you more about it, but we're still in the implementation phase, if you will. Sifting through all the data and making sure that's accurate. You discover so many things in that process. We discover things like our high school graduation rate should be bigger than it is because of data, because it wasn't coded right, things of that nature. So we're finding out those types of things. And then we're implementing a portrait of our graduates. So we're talking about how we can have kids aspire from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, what type of competencies we want our kids to get. That should be done in about a month. So that's coming into fruition. And we just started talking about really having real conversations about what teaching and learning should look like. I shouldn't walk into a classroom in 2023, soon to be 2024, and it looks like it did when I was in high school. It shouldn't look that way. And now we're very honest about, you know, what our strengths are and what our what our challenges are. I think in order to grow, you have to be able to name those problems and attack them. But you can't admire the problems. You have to actually do something about them. And I think we've changed a bit in terms of just sitting and looking at our problem on, on the shelf and polishing it up, taking it off from time to time, talking about it, passing it around, and ultimately putting it back on the shelf. I think now we're actually trying to attack those things. So that's part of changing that mindset. And then getting people to understand and see that our kids do some phenomenal things. We have some brilliant kids and we didn't talk about them. We didn't celebrate them. And we're trying to do much more of that now. When we realize what education is, you know, it's easy for the adults to say, well, they're not doing what we want them to do, or they're not doing what we did, or, you know, we're, we got to prepare them for jobs. I'm like, yeah, we got to prepare them for careers. We have to prepare them for a world that we can't imagine. And, you know, fortunately, we have some business partners at the table who share in those sentiments and they want to see forward thinking things that happen so that kids can contribute as citizens in our community and compete globally. Yes, I would love for every kid to graduate from Montgomery and stay in Montgomery and work. But the reality is they, they should be able to go anywhere in the world and compete. And if they do that, we've accomplished something. I've always said to myself and to staff that there's, there's a goal I have for every kid. If every kid has an opportunity to be prepared to go into the work world, into college, be it a two-year or four-year, go into the military or be an entrepreneur, if every kid has all four options, we've completely done our job. Unfortunately, we've created boxes where certain kids can only get certain opportunities. And those are the things we have to get out of the way. Those artificial impediments that we've created that prevent kids from getting opportunities, we have to get those things eviscerated. And that's really what some of the work has been. Promethean is a proud sponsor of today's episode of Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast presented by STS Education. Promethean makes interactive displays and teaching software that drive breakthroughs for teachers, students, and colleagues around the world. Learning and collaboration are essential to progress in any field. Our mission is to transform them for the better. As education and the workplace continue to evolve, Promethean is there, helping our customers get the most from cutting edge technology and making sure they're ready for what's next. At Promethean, we are inspired by educators. Promethean was created by teachers for teachers people with a passion for empowering everyone to shine their brightest. Please visit prometheanworld.com to learn more. So, Melvin, I want to first love that you talk about we. I know the board didn't hire a bunch of you. They just hired you. But everything you said is we are going to do this. We are here for these kids. Too many times, I'm sure we all know, we hear a lot of eyes in people that sit in the big chair. We hear a lot of eyes. 
and we don't see a lot of success from the eyes. I try to beat that hole with folks because sometimes people will try to make it about you, be it good or bad. And I'm like, it's not about me. It's about what we do as a collective to make things happen for kids. That's what it's about. When we're in a room, there, there's no one person who's more important than anybody else. That's kind of how I look at it. We all have a role to play. We need to play our role successfully. And if we do so, we're successful together. Well, Montgomery is lucky to have you understanding everybody has a role. You were a contributor to a book, STEM Century. It takes a village to raise a 21st century graduate. It was released in early in 2022. So I imagine that your contribution came from the height of the pandemic. You were locked in. <laughs> so I'll write, I'll write a book which is better than what I did with my time during the pandemic. (laughs) So I have this supposition in the world that the rest of the world is coming back to normal. Less masks, less worry about getting sick. But education hasn't. Education was transformed in the pandemic. And it's not going back. It'll never be the same again. And that could be as little as much as just the devices. Every kid's got a device now and they didn't all have devices then. But it's also the politics of it. The involvement of people who don't have kids' interests at heart, I guess, is the best way to put it. So you wrote in the pandemic, and now we're here a few years on. You're in a new position in a much different school. What's still the same? What's different from them? I think there's still political will out there that wants to erode the impact of public education. And I think the pandemic really opened the gates for them to be able to do that. You know, many districts shifted and did really well virtually, but many didn't. And I think that gave the naysayers an opportunity to poke holes in things. You know, the pandemic is just following this whole equity and social justice movement that then got lost. When we were really starting to talk about all kids and all opportunities and all communities, the pandemic comes and all that, those conversations go by the wayside. And now all of a sudden, you know, equity and opportunity, those become four letter words somehow. And now, you know, you have groups of people who only want people who are like them to be successful. Um, you know, we have conversations about, you know, parents should have rights and blah, blah, blah. And they, and they should. The question is, what parents are you talking about? Are you talking about all parents or are you only talking about the parents like you? You know, we're talking now about banning books and things of that nature because one person can test a book, therefore it's taken off the shelves. Well, you're robbing other parents of an opportunity to have a conversation with their child. You know, if you don't want your child to read a certain book, don't read the book. It's real simple. That doesn't give you the right to dictate to everyone else that they can't do those things. So there are a lot of different battles we're having to fight now. And unfortunately, the pandemic exacerbated that and it gave people all of a sudden they saw they had a voice. You know, they could argue about masks and mandates and school closures. And for whatever reason, the, the loudest voices started to be heard. Those loud, loud voices decided, okay, well, now that I can be heard, I can say these things as well. And, and now we've moved away from the whole notion of, you know, what does equity look like? What does justice look like? What does creating opportunity for all kids look like? It's a very meistic sort of way uh, that we're, we're having to govern things. You know, everybody's looking through their own lens. They're not willing to uh, apply empathy and look at things through other people's experiences. Here in Montgomery, it's imperative that we do that because I mean, if our parents didn't have a a good experience themselves in school and they're going to bring some of those things to the table when they when they engage uh, with their kids in school and they're going to expect maybe their kid won't have a good experience either. So we've got to find ways to tap into their understanding and make sure they know they're part of the process. Uh, They're important to the process and finding ways that they can engage in ways that they can be comfortable with. So um it's been an interesting three years. It really has. 
If I'd gone back to March of 20, had anybody told me it would be this stressful and challenging, I would have said, yeah, there's no way. Now we're also dealing with teacher shortages and no one wants to come into education anymore. Um, superintendents are dropping like flies. And so districts don't have direction because they haven't shipped every two to three years based on who's there and who's not. And unfortunately for us as superintendents, we're all one November away based on whatever that election might be for school boards. So um, it's a very precarious place to be. I'm fortunate to be here where I feel like I'm wanted. Um, but, you know, that could change tomorrow as well. And unfortunately, I have to be prepared for that. Those are honest conversations we have to have with ourselves and with our colleagues so that we can be more prepared to take care of ourselves long term. Um, but it's challenging. Just the, being able to fill positions, teaching positions is challenging to find good people who want to come in and do this kind of work for what we get. They get paid. It's challenging and it's a tough time to be in education. I'm glad I'm toward the latter part of my career as opposed to the front end. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm glad that you're kind of hanging in because there are a lot of folks that are closer to the end of their career and saying, I'm ready to exit early or change how I serve in education. And though I made that same change myself, I did it before the pandemic and before a lot of these things happened, but all of our colleagues are thinking about that all the time. And it, and it keeps you from being able to bring your best game. And I think it's brutal. You and I were chatting just a little bit before we started the show about our children pursuing careers in education and our fears for them. And we're seeing the enrollment in teacher prep programs and colleges just eroding rapidly and colleges wondering if they can keep the faculty on board to do that and continue to run these programs. So how do you attract and retain teachers? Ooh, that's a great question. <laughs> if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I, I had a definite answer about how to go about doing that. Now, I, I really don't know. It's kind of touch and go. You want people to feel good about the work, you want them to feel valued. You may demonstrate that, you know, on a Tuesday and Thursday, something happens. And they're like, I don't feel valued, so I'm leaving. Uh, you know, so it's very touchy. And I, I don't really have a good answer for that. What I want to try to do is create an environment in which people want to work and that they're working with kids who want to learn. It's tough. It really is tough. It sounds to me like you know the answer. When I hear you talk, I think about, I'm sure a board hires you and wants you to think long-term. We want to teach our kids to think long-term, whether they're investing for retirement or investing in their education. And yet every two years or so, the whole world stops while we wait to see what the new direction is going to be. You know, when Alex and I in our careers, we can plan long term. We've got people we report to. We have to keep people happy. But man, I don't know how you do it. So some of this has come about from, you know, we've talked about politics and election. And it's a shame that that's what we have to talk about and what it's going to take Where to make are. schools great, right? <laughs> right. We're supposed to be talking about computers and gaming and kids and attracting them and keeping them, wanting them to go to school and wanting them to see the goals. But we're not. So since we broached the subject of politics and You've been in schools in different states, in different roles. You grew up even in Virginia and Ohio and in Alabama. What do you see would be helpful? Where can help come from? What would you lobby for, if that's a word you're allowed to use? What would you lobby for from those people who are supposed to help us? I think on the front end, people have to vote on what end. Let's take care of that piece of it first. If everybody voted and were committed to doing it each time, I don't believe we'd confront some of the things that we confront. You know, with typical election, 
we're getting 25%, and that's a good day. That goes to vote. And, you know, that's not representative. The loudest voices are always going to be the ones that go out and vote and voice those ideas. The ones who don't vote are typically the ones who are complacent. So those are the ones that you want to vote, but they don't. So I think on the front end, that has to happen. In terms of engaging our legislators, I think it's important for them to understand what the real context of a day in a school looks like and understanding that we can't speak in hyperbole and just mottos and slogans and things like that. We can't talk about, well, all parents should have, you know, parents should have choice and voice and blah, 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 and then neglect the whole segment of parents. We can't do that kind of thing. We can't talk about, you know, we want all kids to be successful. But then we say, on the other hand, but, you know, LGBTQ kids, I don't know about them. We can't say things like that. All kids matter. I don't care where their backgrounds are, where they're from, what they look like, what their orientations are, who their parents are. All kids should have those opportunities. But yet we have so much work being done to either negate or neglect or ignore segments of kids. And that's not what this is supposed to look like. You know, if you can honestly look me in the eye and tell me when I challenged someone before who talked to me about LGBTQ population and, you know, we were doing things to make sure kids feel comfortable in school. We want them to feel like they belong, not fit in, but they belong. And like, oh, you're doing these things. So I was like, well, you know what? Here's a pad and here's a pen. Write down the names of the kids you don't want me to educate. And oh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm like, yeah, you are saying that. You're saying you don't want these kids to feel safe. You don't want them to feel like they belong. And I think as educators, we have to speak out and be honest about those things. We have to call people on what they say and make them say what they mean. And at the same time, with our legislators, I think it's important we have these types of conversations. And sometimes they're uncomfortable, but we should be comfortable being uncomfortable uh, because we're in a place where kids' lives are at stake. And we can't just frivolously play with those things simply because of the way we were raised. I was raised in the country in Virginia. Different lifestyle, different way of living. I can't project that on someone else and expect them to be just like me. That's not what the world is. We're preparing kids for a global society where everyone has a different background or a different experience. And if we would just value each other and value humanity, we probably wouldn't be having these conversations. But unfortunately, we only value people who think like us. If we disagree on an issue, then we have to hate each other. I just think that's the most counterproductive, stupid thing you can do. Um, I'll, I'll talk with people who don't think like me. That's fine. Maybe we'll learn from something from each other. Maybe we'll find a place of common ground. And if we don't, you know what? Okay, we'll walk away. But now, you know, if we disagree on something, not only do we have to hate each other, but we have to be violent toward each other. It's a scary sort of proposition that we have to confront. And um, unfortunately, much of our political discourse has caused this to happen. Not the first time in our history, but because we fail to learn our history, we always repeat it. <laughs> and so here we are again. I never thought in my lifetime I would confront some of the same types of things my mom confronted when she was in school. It's mind-blowing to me. I just never thought that would happen. But here we are having conversations about us essentially having segregated schools on different levels than we did before. Haves and have-nots, not being together. It's a troubling time. It truly is. And I'm just trying to keep a positive mind frame and hopefully inject some good spirit into others so they can do the same thing, so we can do what's best for kids. But, you know, uh, we just take it one day at a time. Melvin, this has been a spectacular discussion. And I'm so glad that we took the time to talk about this. We tend to talk a little bit more about ed tech on this call, but it's important to understand that ed tech takes place in the context of education. 
And education takes place in the context of our community. And so when we have some of the challenges that we discussed on this podcast today, it colors all of that. And it should color all of that. I mean, all of our program, technology, tools, resources, curriculum, all should stem from that community. And when it's not in a healthy spot, it needs to be addressed. It needs to be called out and it needs to be worked on. We try to end our podcast with two questions. I'll put them in your mind and then I'll give you a chance to answer them. So the first is, who in the world of ed tech or just general education would you most like to take to lunch and chat with and why? And then the other is, are there any resources that you think our listeners could really benefit from? So books on equity or community-based education or articles or resources that you can think of. So now to put them in your mind, let's kind of go back to that first one. So who in education would you like to hang with and, and why? That's a tough question. From a tech standpoint, I certainly would love to hang out with Steve Jobs just to pick his brain and get a sense of how he thought and how he has such a growth mindset, how he created that in others and compelled them to think the same way. I would love to have that conversation from a tech standpoint. In terms of education, wow. <laughs> Anytime I would be able to sit down with Maya Angelou and have a conversation <laughs> about not bad. Go <laughs> big. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> I would love to do that. that. That would be, I don't even know what questions I would ask. I would just listen. And, you know, when anybody can impart that type of wisdom on you about how to advocate for people and how to advocate for education, I would want to take all that in. Those would certainly be two of the people I'd be interested in, but that's a whole, a whole litany of people I would love to talk to. That'd be an interesting lunch table, wouldn't it? It would. Absolutely. Yeah. If you had those two. And if you'll forgive me, the common theme that I sort of quickly drew, as you mentioned, those two is design, right? I mean, Steve Jobs and Apple is known for creating beauty in their tech. And Maya Angelou, of course, beauty in the language and the power that comes from taking those words and structuring them within that framework of beauty and poetry. So that's awesome. Thank you. Any resources that books, articles, resources, conversations you've had that you'd love to share with our audience? I think given what our conversation has been and the political nature of it, I think there are a lot of notions out there about history and how people think and how people have evolved that are misplaced. And I think uh, one resource I would encourage anybody to read is the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, who will explain throughout that entire book how the notion of separate groups of people came to be and how it impacts us on a daily basis and how it it's almost asinine that we think that way. If I look at a group of people and I say, you know, I don't want anything to do with those types of people, I'm better than them. Not only in, in from a human standpoint, obviously you don't want to shouldn't be doing that. But even from an economic standpoint, it doesn't make sense. If I have a business, I want everybody to take part because I'm going to make money from that. I think that book really examines how people have thought throughout the history, throughout numbers of different histories, if you will, across the world, and how that manifests in the work every day. Um, I think that would put us in a better place. If everyone read that book and had an understanding of what that whole premise might be, I think it would change a lot of people's thinking in terms of how they look at others. Thank you. That's great. Dr. Brown, Melvin, thank you so much for joining us on this show. This was a great conversation. 
I think a departure a little bit from where we go, but necessary and valuable. And thank you for kind of taking us on this journey and sharing with us all the things that you're working on. Thank you. Normally I let Alex have the last word, but I wanted to add just one thing. My friend, Dr. Brown, Melvin, I'm so glad that you joined us. I'm so glad you took us where an engineer and another tech guy don't normally go for a conversation we had to have. But I have a feeling we could talk about a hundred different conversations and they would all be as insightful and enjoyable as this one. I'm so glad I got to see you again. Thank you for coming with us. Good to see you as well. Bob, that was an incredible conversation. I know you've known him for years. That was my first time meeting him. But what a powerful conversation about huge challenges that we need to address. What kind of hit or struck you the most? Obviously, like you said, I've known Melvin for a few years and the occasions in which we've had dinner together or lunch or something, we've had these conversations and it doesn't matter what we talk about. The man just understands things and he puts it away that's easy for you to understand. And, and, you know, like everything else, it's good for us to hear another point of view. And in this instance, not just about demographics of schools or whatever, but not to talk about technology, because like you said, there's a whole context that technology lives in. To us, it's a big part of our day every day. But to see the context it lives in, it's very powerful. Dr. Brown is a very powerful speaker, powerful mind. Yeah. And in his book that we mentioned in the show, and we'll make sure that we put into the notes as well, he talks more about how technology can be used as a tool to support and address equity issues. We didn't get too far into that today because I felt like it was almost disrespectful to the size of the context, Bob, that you mentioned in this. I'm glad that we spent the time talking about that on this call because it's part of everything that we do. So, well, that was great. Anything else you want to add as we wrap this up? You know, the only thing that I kept thinking throughout that conversation, aside from there's something I never thought of, there is something that needs to be said was how lucky are the staff, students, and community of Montgomery to have that guy on their side? No kidding. And the thing that struck me too is we need educators and leaders who are fully acknowledging and aware of the gravity of the challenges that we're dealing with. They know that they're tired and they'll just do the work to fix it anyway. Like, he's my hero. Like, we need folks like that. And I'm so glad that we were able to get a few minutes of his time to share that. I don't think there's anything else to say. He's a great guy (laughs) working for a good cause. I hope he inspires others. Agreed. Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast is brought to you by STS Education, a Pacific One Source company. To learn more about how educators can leverage technology to drive successful educational outcomes, check us out at www.stsed.com. Connect with us by searching for Learning Through Technology in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And click subscribe so you don't miss an episode. On behalf of the team at STS Education, thanks for joining us.